Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, the Head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at Antidote Festival in 2019. Good evening, everybody, um, and welcome to this session, one of the final sessions, I think, um, of Antidote, the Economics of Disability. My name is Jackie Leach Scully, and I'm director of the uh, Disability Innovation Institute at UNSW here in Sydney. This evening's panel, I'll introduce uh, in a moment, But I'd like to just say a couple of words about the the topic. I think certainly those of you who are of my generation or older will have um, probably come from a background in which disability and people with disability came heavily associated with the idea of uh, economic burden, burden to society, burden to family, and so on. Uh, And with the last few decades, that language and the thinking, I think, has changed um, towards um, the idea of of inclusion and the possibilities of um, people with disabilities um, being productive members of society, if I can say, almost in quote marks there. I think one of the things I hope this panel will be able to do is have a look at some of those ideas critically in the Australian context. I'm hoping to learn as much as anybody else in the audience. Um, As you can tell, as soon as I open my mouth, I'm not from these shores. Um, And in fact, I arrived in Australia uh, about six weeks ago. So I'm hoping to learn a lot in in the next hour. I can introduce our panelists, um, and then I'll kick off with a very general question um, to stimulate a bit of a discussion among the panellists for about 30, 40 minutes. And then the idea is that we'll open the floor to um, a Q&A session. So if you have burning questions, rest assured that you will get a chance to um, put them to members of the panel uh, slightly later on. So to start with, here on my right, Samantha Connor is a disability and human rights activist wheelchair user, writer, and self-claimed social media assassin. (laughs) She's held a number of positions in the disability sector, including being Vice President of People with Disability Australia. And she has a passion for the prevention of violence against disabled people and an interest in the correlation between societal attitudes and hate crimes, disability hate crimes, including uh, crimes against autistic individuals got a strong background in systemic advocacy in the areas of disability and disadvantage, and currently the convener of a yellow sub-disability rights organisation. And here on my left, Damien Griffiths is a descendant of the Warimai people of the Manning Valley in New South Wales, and he's a well-known and leading advocate for human rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people living with disability. He's been a central figure in the establishment of the Aboriginal Disability Network New South Wales and the national organisation representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disabilities and their families, and that's the first People's Disability Network Australia. And finally, on my far left, Professor Bruce Bonihardi, AM, is the Chair and Director of the Melbourne Disability Institute at the University of Melbourne. Uh, also an enterprise professor in disability economics at the university, and is well known as one of the key architects of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which I'm sure we'll get discussed this evening, and widely regarded as the father of that scheme. Um, Bruce became a member of the Order of Australia for services to people with disability, their families and carers, and to the community. Uh, and as a contributor to a range of charitable organisations. And from 2013 to 16, he was the inaugural chair of the National Disability Insurance Agency. So, I think without further ado, I want to kick off by asking 
uh, Sam, if I can. What do you see as particularly problematic at the moment, most crucial in the economics of disability in Australia? The easy questions then. So um, I think anybody who is in the disability space at the moment knows that we are experiencing a huge number of issues with the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Um, it's not directly related to income support. So you can be on a disability support pension, but then also be in the National Disability Insurance Scheme. So that you know, provides support for people to bridge the gap between a disabled life and an ordinary life. Um, so people across Australia are struggling with um, a whole bunch of issues that are new because we have this new disability reform. Um, we're also struggling with the same issues that we've always struggled with, which are around disadvantage, um, poverty and um, discrimination and ableism. So there's a lot for us to do and we're all very busy at the moment. Okay, thank you. If I can turn to you, Damien, um, how would you respond to that? Sure. Um one of the major concerns we have at the First People's Disability Network is the increasing criminalisation of disabilities, we see it. So um, some recent data suggested as many as 70% of Aboriginal people have a cognitive impairment. Um, so that concerns us greatly, this locking away of people. The intersectionality between racism and ableism is playing out very adversely for Aboriginal people with disability. Another extraordinary human rights violation, if I may, is the indefinite detention of Aboriginal people with disability in Australian prisons. Happens in the Northern Territory especially, but also in Queensland. That's an extraordinary thing to contemplate, that there are Australians who are detained in prison indefinitely. Um, and that's something we'll be taking to the United Nations in a couple of weeks. The other thing I would say, and, and goes to what Sam said, is ensuring fair and equitable access to the National Disability Insurance Scheme for Aboriginal people. Uh, we first uh, wrote, uh, developed a 10-point plan for the successful implementation of the NDIS in our communities back in 2013. And other than some isolated cases, we're really not seeing meaningful progress there. We believe in the scheme, uh, but it's long overdue that it become more effective for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability and their families. Look, I, Jackie, I think we're at a um, very important point in the, I guess, the history and the development of the NDIS in Australia and more broadly um, disability policy. Uh, one can look at the NDIS as a huge disruptive force. I would argue a very positive force, but it's been a disruptive force at the same time. And we're now at a point where we've got 300,000 people, over 300,000 people in the scheme and in it, out of the expected 460,000. And I think we now have to make a shift from an emphasis on getting people in. We still need to get the remaining people into the scheme, but we have to shift to a real focus on the quality of experience. And as both Sam and Damien uh, have indicated, I think if you're well-educated or you can, uh, and you can advocate for yourself or you've got someone who can advocate for you, this is a terrific scheme. Um, but if you're Indigenous or come from a culturally and linguistically diverse background or you have a psychosocial disability uh, and no one to advocate for you, this is an immensely complex scheme which actually excludes people. So equity, which was meant to be at the heart of this scheme, is now being challenged in a very, very significant way. I think there are some factors that uh, have contributed to that, such as local area coordinators focusing only on planning rather than on community uh, development and capacity building. Uh, but we need to really make that shift to make this scheme uh, equitable. The other big issue we've got, which is not being addressed at all, is what happens to those people who are not eligible for the NDIS? People on average in the NDIS will receive $40,000. If you look at the funding that's now available for the roughly 1.5 million people who will not be eligible for the NDIS, it's about $50 per head. So we've got a cliff at the edge of the scheme and that um, also is deeply inequitable and we need to make sure there's a slope there that it, so that the last person into the scheme just see, receives a little bit more than the first person who misses out. 
If we can get those things right, then I think we can start to deliver the economic benefits that we all hope are just going will deliver in time. Okay. And it, it, it's obviously it's part of uh, the NDIS is one part of a really complex um, picture, both in this country and similar schemes in in, in other countries. Um, I mean, we know that globally, um, people with disabilities are generally much poorer. Um, uh, are, are much less likely to be in employment, to be less likely to be in education, have poorer health outcomes, uh, and so on. And although I'm very unfamiliar with the Australian context, uh, when I've compared what I know with the UK one, it's very similar that there's um, under 50% of the working age population of people with disabilities are in employment, uh, compared to around 80% or so of those people without disabilities of working age. So there's one factor there about um, employment and the and issues um, there. What, what do you feel about the kind of barriers to um, employment, if I can turn to you? Sarah. So, um, there's, there's, we have these weird perceptions about where disabled people belong. Mm -hmm. um, so, so the recent data set that came out from the NDIS showed that um, I think it was half of the people who were over the age of 25 worked in supported employment, which um, old term is sheltered workshops. You can earn as legally as little as a dollar an hour in this country. And so the gap for us is that the NDIS doesn't provide food or cars or necessarily housing. Um, those sort of issues are you know, mean that people are not getting into work um, in the same way that other people have opportunities around. Um, and then we also have those barriers that just come with being disabled. So people think that we're sick, incapable, unable. Um, people try to get us into um, jobs that aren't suited for us particularly. Um, I haven't always been a wheelchair user. I have muscular dystrophy and it's a degenerative thing. Um, so. I've been a walker for half of my life and then wandered around for the rest sort of saying, what? <laughs> What's going on? Um, but I remember I was a manager at an um, um, education institution and I went and spoke to HR and said, um, look, I'm going to be using a wheelchair very shortly. You know, my doctor has told me. And, and they said, do you think you'll be safe? What if you fall over? And I said, how? How would you do that, you know? <laughs> you have to be amazingly talented to fall. And, but I've been staggering around for, you know, quite a period of time and then on crutches. And I thought that was a really key thing for me that all of a sudden people's, the way people regarded me as an employee um, had changed. You know, suddenly I was a risk and suddenly I was incapable and I was less able to manage. So I think there's those combinations of issues where um, attitudinal barriers really inform our lack of employment opportunities. Yeah, the social attitudes really is as much a barrier as the, um, you know, the, the environmental or the building or something like that. Yeah, and I mean, I mean the people who build the buildings um, are the people who, you know, their attitudes are informing that as well. We do have disability standards that might open the doors in terms of putting in ramps for people who are wheelchair users and putting in accommodations for people with invisible disabilities. Um, but unless you have um, an open culture that's welcoming of disabled people and a willingness to not just shut the door in people's faces before, often before they go for the interview, um, we don't have those opportunities. And I think we also really need to start looking at um, what is participation and what is work and what is valuable? Because this idea that we're all going to be contributors in a particular way, there's lots of ways that people can give of themselves and that they can contribute, and we need to look at that too. Yeah, maybe we'll come back to that later on, I think, we'll pick it up, but if I can uh, ask you, Damon, is the, you sort of mentioned in a, in a way the, the compounding factor of being a member of mm. the Aboriginal community. Um, and how does that play out in terms of you know, access to employment opportunities mm. and so on? Well, the major barrier from an Aboriginal perspective, we would say, is a lack of infrastructure. So this is particularly the case in regional remote Australia. So what I mean by infrastructure might be footpaths or meaningful ways to move around your community. We don't generally have a barrier around attitude. In fact, in traditional language, there's no comparable word for disability. So that would suggest disability has always been part of the accepted human experience from an Aboriginal perspective. In fact, uh, there was a relatively recent 
discovery at Lake Mungo in western New South Wales. Uh, there's been a single footprint discovered with a stick, is the view, uh, and it's been dated at 25,000 years ago. So that would suggest that that individual was participating in community life like anyone else. We also have evidence of uh, indigenous sign languages and there's more and more research into that. And it wasn't uncommon for a blind Aboriginal person to be a traditional healer, for example. So where we encounter challenges or where Aboriginal people with disability and their families encounter challenges is the moment they interact with the external system. So there's plenty of evidence to show that young Aboriginal kids generally you know, accepted valued members of their community. When they engage with the education system, that's when the drama starts. So, and that may be sadly institutional racism, it may be institutional ableism, but that's when the barriers start appearing. So in a lot of ways, we would say Aboriginal Australia are thought leaders on inclusion. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, as my cousin Scott Avery's recently written in his book uh, entitled Culture is Inclusion, I think summarises that perfectly. Um, notions of labelling people uh, and the way disability is talked about in our communities is more an impairment-based way, which is entirely appropriate. So brother there can't hear too well, cousin's not moving around too well, uncle's a bit slower than everyone else. Not said in a pejorative way, but said in a way so that others in the community can ensure that person participates. Um, so we don't have an attitudinal barrier, but we do most definitely have an infrastructure barrier. And regrettably, the only other thing else I would say is the NDIS doesn't answer that problem. As Sam said, the NDIS, because it takes an individualised approach, won't, fix the, won't uh, fix the footpaths in Wonkajonka, or it won't provide a wheelchair accessible bus in Tennant Creek, unless we do it in a different way. Unless we, and these are things we've talked about before, but unless we start doing things like people perhaps pooling their packages and therefore having more buying power in the marketplace and perhaps purchasing a wheelchair vehicle, uh, is an entirely appropriate response in a lot of ways. So, so yeah, we would say we don't have an attitude issue, it's more around infrastructure. Yeah. Okay. Jackie, I think when you, when you look at the um, statistics on employment of people with disability or the participation in the labour force, it's something like 78% for the population as a whole and about 48% for people with disabilities. You look at the unemployment rate uh, of people with disabilities, it's about twice the rate for the population as a whole. So we've got a major issue there. And when we compare ourselves with other OECD countries, we rank in the bottom third. So there's a huge issue that needs to be addressed. And when I think about um, how we're going to solve it, part of it's about attitude, part of it's about um, infrastructure, but part of it also starts at school and the education that students with disabilities receive, how well it prepares them for life uh, after school, when do we start preparing them for uh, post-school options, how accessible are those uh, post-school options, to what extent are we customising roles, actually looking to build on the strengths of people with disability. You know, we've got some examples of that where um, people with autism are being employed in roles which require very high attention to detail, but why are they the exception rather than the rule? And when we think about the benefits of employing people with disability, I think it, it tends to be structured in a very individualistic way, and I guess this sort of goes to uh, a point Damien was making, that uh, it's all about the benefit to that individual because they've got the job, as opposed to what benefit comes from having a person with a disability in the workplace and the sense of teamwork that comes from that. There's a story I was told recently about the Victorian police who had struggled to uh, find people who would take two particular roles. They decided eventually to offer those roles to people with disability. And what they found was what you find with most people with disability, which is that they're more reliable, more committed than people without disabilities, more loyal. But what they hadn't anticipated was the sense of teamwork that came in that particular unit, which hadn't existed before, because the workmates wanted to help those two colleagues to help them do the job better. So I think we just need a much more holistic uh, approach to this 
um, and realise that there are many things that can contribute to these outcomes. And it's like a, like a pipe, a leaky pipe. There are lots of spots where that pipe can leak and we need to get progressively go through, identify those potential leaks and make sure that we fix them. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think one of the things that's quite fascinating is when you broaden that, that viewpoint and think about and then the holistic view, as you said, the sort of whole um, ecology almost of disability and non-disability within the community. Um, I remember years ago being very struck by something that Anita Silvers, who's a disability scholar from the United States, um, said that for, she estimated that for every person with a disability that there was, there were around six people being employed in some way, whether it was as a carer or um, more distally as somebody who was involved in the um, distribution of, of, of benefits or an audiologist or a wheelchair manufacturer or something, something like that. I mean, does, is, do you have any sort of feeling about the way in which that perspective could be, um, could be used? I think, I think it's been evidenced at the moment that there's this, um, with the NDIS, there's this, this cultural shift that's very, very, very slowly happening, um, where people are finally getting the idea that actually this is our funding attached to us as people, mm -hmm. and we are the people who are employing you, and that you are in work because we exist. Mm -hmm. And so we've been commodified for a lot of years. Um, we used to have a system which was block funded, so um, big providers would get a chunk of money and they would allocate it and that was how, you know, this was this rationed system and other people applied for funding and it was sort of on merit about um, who was in the most trouble at the, at the time and those people would be funded. And now we've moved to this, um, to an NDIS, although it's not working spectacularly well now, the potential for that cultural change for us to be seen as customers in the same way that other people who purchase any kind of services um, anywhere. I think that's something that's very, very slowly starting to happen. So people are starting to do things like um, speak up about problems where they hadn't before. So people who were living in group homes and were stuck there before would never speak up about that because you know, the reality was that um, you wouldn't be able to leave, you'd be penalised. Um, there would be all those sorts of issues. So, um, so I think those things are starting to shift. I think we really need that to happen for this scheme to work well. And um, yeah, can we fast forward five years and make that happen? That would be great. I was wondering um, when you... Uh, sort of talking earlier about the various barriers of the that the Aboriginal communities might face it, whether there's also um, sort of something to do with that confidence to be able, and in, in a sense, the social capital and so on, to be able to engage in the way that Sam has said, the more challenging way, the more consumerist way, is, is that problematic, do you think? Yeah, very much so. Um, I'm immediately thinking of a community workshop that I ran in uh, Western New South Wales a couple of weeks ago, uh, where there was a number of community members who were there to learn more about the NDIS and how to, you know, work it in their favour. Um, no one in the room had had a positive experience really because they didn't have the confidence in the system. Mm. So the deep distrust that most Aboriginal people feel of engaging with government, as a lot of us, you know, a lot of us would probably be aware, is based on evidence. So we have extraordinary rates of child removal, for example, and it's, and it's, it's increasing in every jurisdiction in the country. So if you're an Aboriginal parent and your part of getting into the NDIS is to approach it from a deficit model, is to go and say, these are the things my child struggles with, it's very loaded. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the risks are very high because you're likely, and, and this evidence is everywhere, so in every community, someone knows someone whose child doesn't live at home anymore. Mm -hmm. So to ask for help comes with risk. And there was a father at this workshop in, in, in Dubai the other day that just said it perfectly. He said, the hardest thing to do is ask for help. And I thought when he said that, it was simple and profound at the same time. And because what he was saying was, there is so much risk for me as an Aboriginal man. It was a single father with two daughters with severe and profound disability. 
He felt the risk was, well, my, child will, my children will be removed. So we have to come at things with the NDIS from a trauma-informed background. And, we, and that applies to people with disability too, actually. It's not just an Aboriginal issue. A, a person with disability who's grown up in an institution is traumatised. So we need the system to, I'd argue, get a bit more human, to be honest, um, get away from churn and moving people through the system and actually sitting down with people and understanding their lived circumstance, if you like. Um, I, I'm worried that we're moving increasingly away from that, and that was never the intention of the scheme, um, and that will have very adverse uh, outcomes for Aboriginal communities, but I dare say people with intellectual disability too and any number of other people. So. And can I just add to that with the... Um issues around things like child removal. Yeah. Um, so I'm an autistic woman. There's um, so many people in my community who are autistic women who are terrified that their children are going to be removed. Yeah. A lot of us have um, disabled children. I'm also a carer. Um, there are people who um, just have different identities, so members of the LGBTI community. I know that there's a friend who's a lesbian in the room who has, um, you know, been told by a religious provider that, you know, you can't have those friends over. So those issues. And we've had this power imbalance that's happened for a long time. If you add to that, you know, people who have had their children removed during the stolen generation and, and also um, people with intellectual disability who are parents have their children removed at enormous rates. Mm. So these are some really mm. tricky issues that we're dealing with. Yeah. I think we can fix them, though. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I mean, these issues of cultural appropriateness, mm. I think, are just really deep. You know, I think... When we go back to what um, was intended, it was always intended that this scheme would be very different to other government um, mm. bureaucracies, you know, that it would be um, culturally appropriate. And I think part of that can be you know, explained by the speed of the rollout, but you know, we now really have to make that um, cultural shift. And I also think that the point that Damien has made about the importance of the social glue uh, is important that, you know, while the NDIS is individualised, that works really well if you uh, are a person who's got high intellectual function with strong family connections and you live in metropolitan Australia. Mm -hmm. But the further you move out from those dimensions and uh, the more it's about embedding um, people... Well, everyone is... We all hope we're part of family. And so some of these broader family and community perspectives need to be brought in. It's also very important in the case of children. You know, early intervention services and children exist um, within families. And so... Uh, and we've had a massive shift away from family-centred practice, which we know is best practice, to a much more individualised approach, which is far from uh, optimal. So I think there are a number of things here that we, we can see, and I think really what we now need is much more data and research and evidence to inform uh, where the scheme uh, needs to go. I also think, just picking up your point, Jackie, about the growth that comes from giving people with disability mm -hmm. funding to go and purchase services they need, um, in many ways, the growth in the Australian economy over the last couple of years has been uh, propped up by the NDIS. When you look at where the jobs have come from, a lot of it's been in uh, disability. And so you say that's, that's great. But there have also been some uh, major missed opportunities. And one that Damien and I have talked a lot about is how you can get, how we could get Aboriginal community-controlled uh, health organisations in these remote communities to extend out into disability services. And look, these will be the jobs in those communities. You know, 20% of the new jobs in Australia will come from the NDIS. 100% could be mm. from the NDIS in these remote communities. Sure. And we really need to grab those opportunities to maximise the benefit and ensure people in those communities actually have services, you know, which they don't have today. So there's, you know, there's lots to do. We just need to get it done. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. The kind of, from my perspective, sort of looking back on what has happened in the United Kingdom, say, over, over the last you know, couple of decades, um, do you think that there will come a point at which 
um, whatever the, those long-term benefits of the NDIS that you're speaking of, that's the, the general public or politician or somebody will say, it's just costing us too much. Well, I certainly um, hope we don't get to that point. I mean, I think all the indications are that the NDIS has the potential to be another Medicare, you know, sort of deeply um, ingrained in our community as something that we all value because, um, you know, before the NDIS, there was no right to be to receive support and the, the, the framing of it as an insurance policy which everybody can get access to if they themselves or a child or a grandchild has a disability, I think has been incredibly powerful in... Um, uh, winning public support for the scheme. And if I just think of our Prime Minister and his brother-in-law who's got uh, MS, you know, pre-NDIS, he would have got nothing. And now, you know, his brother-in-law is supported. And, you know, he's going round the country now saying, I've got skin in the game. So we have a level of bipartisanship here, Jackie, which has withstood changes of government, changes of Prime Minister, and it's still very strong, and we just need to make sure that continues. Um, and the way to make sure it continues is to make sure that the NDIS delivers as intended and produces the economic benefits that um, we all know it can deliver. This, this is my poker face. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce and I always do this. Yeah. So, um, we probably have different political views. Who did you vote for? Um, so we, um, I think one of the things that you brought up before, Jackie, was around that idea of burden. Um, mm. One of the things that is incredibly annoying is that people have started to talk about NDIS in that language of burden and started talking about us wasting money or taxpayer dollars or us rorting the scheme and this type of um, narrative. Um, so it's been a really tricky, um, oh, probably last six months or so, uh, you can hear that language being ramped up. And I don't know, Bruce, do you have a car? Has anyone ever said to you, my taxpayer dollars paid for your roads? <laughs> they never do. Um, look, I think, <laughs> look, people have, have said that to me, but I think by and large, you know, when, if you go all the way back to when the government announced that it was going to raise the Medicare levy by half a percent to partially fund the scheme, over 80% of the population supported it. You know, I think, I think Australians um, are very decent and fair people and the vast majority just see this scheme as part of that fairness that um, we're well known for. And um, so... You know, you will always get people who say, look, I don't want to pay for that, but... I think it's, I think it's the narrative that's yeah. in the papers at the moment that I'm complaining about rather than Australians, quiet yeah. or otherwise. Um, I think there's um, a, lot of, um, a lot of people who would never say that these things about Medicare, for example, you know, you have cancer and my taxpayer dollars are paying for your treatment. I've never heard anybody say those things. So I think the, the narrative that's been run around us being burdensome and the taxpayer dollars and where they're going is very much um, a manufactured one that's for political game. And I think um, that's one thing that we really need to change. And we need to understand that this makes good economic sense to get disabled people into work to support people not to be in crisis and to shift them into other systems like, you know, living in a hospital for two years costs a huge amount of money rather than living in your own home with support. Or even just living in crisis and using the mental health system. You know, they're the sorts, that's the sorts of cost shifting that we, we have. Um, so we really need to start um, looking at this as an entitlement-based scheme where we're getting the support that we need to be who we are and this is something that makes sense for all Australians and any, anybody in Australia can actually become one of us or have a child who is like us at any time. Yeah. I, th I, think, um, I think you're right, Sam, Matt, and, you know, I, I, th I think we're sort of making, you know, that shift is, is starting um, and, is, you know, is underway and the more people with disabilities are out and about in the community which the NDIS is enabling them to do, the more 
you know, I think accepting and inclusive our communities are becoming. It's not, um, it's not without its hiccups and, 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 you know, problems, but, you know, I think that that is happening. And I think we also need to remind ourselves that with Medicare, it took 20 years right. from the, 90, you know, the mid-1970s when Whitlam introduced it to the mid-1990s before it became, you know, a truly bipartisan policy. And so, in many ways, the NDIS has happened much faster. Um, and so, and then we now have this fast implementation which has got the hiccups which then lead people to question it. But, you know, hopefully we're, we're working our way through that. Um, I'm... I'm probably really nervous. So, uh, and I think I'm coming from a bigger picture sort of view, I guess. Um, I think we have to fight as hard as we've ever fought. And I think we're gonna have to keep fighting. Having worked in the community sector now for 30 years, it feels hard as it's ever been to have your voice heard in my view. Um, so I think we're gonna have to keep fighting. I worry about See, I think there's a mythology around the egalitarianism in Australia, so um, I don't see that in regional remote Australia. I don't see that once I go across the Blue Mountains in New South Wales. Uh, we lock more people away. Uh, racism is on the rise. We have a mean-spirited, small-minded governance in this country, I would argue. Um, we see that reflected in punitive meanness around immigration. I think my organisation gets trolled by racists um, and brothers and sisters in the room would know that experience and know that that's on the rise. So I think we have to fight really hard and I worry that there will come a time not too far away and if Australia was to go into recession, say, then uh, people with disability will pay for that recession in many ways. So having said all that, though, uh, I'm still an idealist and I'm still believing in it. But I think we also need to shine a light on some of the dark places that are getting uh, uh, more traction today. Um, and I worry about that a lot. I think one of the presentations here today at the festival, uh, which I didn't get to see, but I believe was on anti-Semitism. So, yeah, I understand from my Jewish friends, that's on the rise too. So um, meanness and nastiness is sort of in vogue and I worry about that a lot. That's just my view. Yeah, yeah. and I think, you know, the other, yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Just remembering the last time I clapped my hand on a stage at this place, my yeah. <laughs> electronic device made my smart drive shoot forward That's to right. the edge of the stage. And that woman just over there saved my life by putting her hands up. So, thank you, Susan. Um, <laughs> little moment of terror, just clapping then. Um, I think um, we also, in that, in that shift, we, um, we also need to get rid of these ideas around the right and the left, you know, I know this is a global thing. So at the moment, as a disabled person, we don't fit anywhere. You know, we the feminists hate us. I'm a feminist. They hate us. Um, because we don't quite fit. The type of violence we experience is not the same as the violence experienced by other people. You know, it's almost 50-50 in terms of gender as a disabled, shouty, red-headed woman talking about disabled men and boys being abused, um, you sound like MRA, like a men's rights activist, you know? Um, we don't fit when we have concerns about things like assisted suicide and euthanasia, where we are talking about people not getting the support to live before they're getting the support to die. It doesn't matter if you're in favour or not. Um, so when we have those arguments, we're on the side of the Catholics. How does that work? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's really odd. We don't quite fit anywhere. So we need to get rid of these emerging ideas that there's people who fit over here and people who fit over there. And we need to actually come together on, on the points around humanity and about decency and about respect and about compassion. Um, and I think we need to start doing that right now because as Damien said, this is a scary time. 
and people need to make individual commitment to do that. Just before we move into uh, the, the Q&A session then, I but I didn't want to lose the point that you made earlier about um, productivity, in a sense. And I, I think, as always, when you think about the economics of something, economics of disability tends to be um, wrapped around these, these very, uh, uh, I suppose, you know, capitalist um, ideas, neoliberal ideas of um, a person's value being quantifiable in terms of their productivity. Um, and I think one of the really difficult issues is that there will, um, however much I think one uh, invests and supports into getting disabled people um, into the workplace and so on, there will always be some people with disabilities for whom that will be impossible, who will not be economically productive. Um, and I think there may be an issue perhaps about how we value people within some kind of broader um, economic system, not in financial terms or productive terms as well. That's such a white concept, isn't it? <laughs> no, yeah. it really is. We, um, this idea, I think the biggest lesson that I ever had was taught to me by a man who, had, um, who has cerebral palsy and um, he would, on a piece of paper, owned by the NDIS, it would look like severe and profound disability with a severe intellectual disability that doesn't communicate, you know, in the same way as other people. And, um, but this guy was a swimming teacher, his mum told me. I said, he's a swimming teacher? How? And so this man's body moves in a particular way, tall, gangly, teen guy. Um, he was being paid a casual wage to be passed around in a pool of occupational therapists who needed to learn how to actually um, assist people who were going through hydrotherapy and who were actually, um, you know, swimming. And so that was his job. He loved the water and he was paid a regular wage and he went to work regularly and he had a casual income. And so for me, it was a real learning experience about, you know, this man has a job. <laughs> you know, this is not a different thing from any of the rest of us. Um, so this was about him loving his work, being valued by the people that he worked with and for, and having a regular experience. I think it really is, the onus is on people um, to stop thinking about us in terms of economics and about productivity in that traditional way and look at the types of gifts that we have and what we can contribute. And that includes with our own unique skills, bodies, minds. Um, we have things to offer that other people don't. Okay. okay, I think it's time to open up now to, to the floor. There are some roving microphones going around and I'm going to ask people, if you have a question, to stick your hand up and I'll point to you and if you could wait until the microphone reaches you um, before speaking, that would be great. Um, this has all been very interesting talking about the NDIS, but a lot of people who hit that magic number of 66 fall into a very difficult um, place. They don't have access to technology. Um, I had my disability at the age of three and I still have it, but because my birthday falls outside the guidelines, if I wish to have technology, which I use at home on my PC or my technology that I, I'm very limited in what I can purchase because I, I don't have the same access to um, technology that people who I know and are friends with who are um, just below that number, they seem to have, I mean, I don't resent what they have. I say good on them getting what they, what they need. But it seems a crazy number that, you know, if you've had your disability all your life, that when you hit that, um, magic number, you're really a person, their attitude to me is that you are an older person and you should be thinking about what they call the, <laughs> the three doors and um, I just don't accept that because, <laughs> um, I mean, yes, there are packages but the packages don't cover the same, um, don't afford the, the, the people over 65 the same um, level of um, assistance that people under 65 get. Okay, okay. that sounds like one for Bruce. Yeah, okay. Oh, look, mm -hmm. can I just 
Well, first of all, can I just express my sympathy for your position as someone who's been blind um, all your life? Is, yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I think there are a couple of... Well, there are a number of categories where people have had disabilities all their lives and because when the NDIS was introduced in their area and they're over 65, they haven't been eligible for it. And I, I don't think anyone can defend particularly defend that as a, um, as a policy. Um, I think the, the broader, uh, and, you know, there are other groups, you know, particularly, um, you know, where people have had disabilities at early ages and then, and then are, not, are not in. So I, I guess I'm, I can only, only say I'm sorry that, that it's, it's happened in that way. I think the... There is a broader point, though, which um, goes to the, the nature of the scheme as an insurance scheme, which is that um, most of us will acquire... Because there's some people who argue that you, irrespective of what age you get your disability, you should be able to be eligible for the NDIS. And I guess my point is that, um, that we all, or most of us, will acquire disabilities uh, as we age. And, at that point, we're not... And so you, that's an uninsurable risk. You know, that's something you have to save for. And the aged care system is supposed to deal with it. It doesn't necessarily deal with it very well, but that is the way it was in, initially intended to be. OK, thank you. Mm. Was that your fault? Pardon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was yeah. just asking. Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember, sorry, I just remember... You want to go over a go, Sam? I just remember the discussion at the time that we'd have to cut out children, mm. we'd had to cut out people over the age of 65 in the very early policy discussions, mm. and there's a group called um, My Age Scare, yeah. that group, yeah. of a very, very vocal group of seniors who are lobbying and they're doing a great job, but I wonder if it's worth revisiting for people who... Um, can evidence that they've had lifelong disabilities or they've acquired a disability before the age of 65 to include that population into the scheme. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I certainly think it's, um, it's worth thinking about. And, you know, the government's now doing this review, which goes also to questions of um, the legislation and eligibility. So there may be another yeah. opportunity to um, sort of address that question. I, I guess I feel particularly for people who um, were in trial sites where if they'd been in an earlier trial site they would have been 64 but you know because their trial site they were 67 you know they're not in uh, and I know of cases where people moved to trial sites so that they could get in but not everyone could do that or not everyone was aware that they could um, do that so there is clearly an unfairness there that um, needs to you know that should be looked at uh, you know because it's not not fair, it doesn't pass the fairness test. Mm. Mm. There have been several hands up, I know, and I think mm. somebody over there? Yeah. Uh, John Hewson wrote around 12 months ago that the NDIS was going to be like another pink bats, in terms of, I think, picks up the point you mentioned. <laughs> and to walk that analogy down the road a little bit, the pink bats situation was complicated by problems in delivery and scruples of, of operators. My day job puts me in regular contact with traumatised or psychologically injured workers, and by far the greatest majority come from the disability um, service sector. Um, and I'm Sorry, the vast majority are? The people who I see, psychologically injured workers, in terms of a proportion, are people working in the disability care sector. So there seems to be, and, and the things I'm hearing is that there's quite a, a lot of problems in the industry, particularly with just in terms of the, the lot of the disability support worker, whether it be bullying, whether it be the nature of the work. And I just wanted to ask, is there something about to just join, I suppose, the conversation about the NDIS, a problem with the actual delivery of services? Did the panel have anything to say about problems with that aspect of the NDIS? Yeah. So, look, I think there is undoubtedly an issue with delivery of services, you know, that the market, you know, hasn't grown as quickly as, um, the, as people have got funding. You know, the average utilisation of packages sits at about 60%. And I think... When I go back and think about the processes that we use to get to the NDIS, I think one of the great strengths, one of the reasons we've got the NDIS is because the work of the work the Productivity Commission did 
to demonstrate the economic benefits of it, that it would add 1% to GDP, that the economic benefits would outweigh the costs. But I think one of the great shortcomings of sending this, of relying on the Productivity Commission to do the main lead-up work was they did they paid insufficient attention to the market and the need to develop the market. They just worked on the basis that um, the demand would grow and the supply would quickly follow. And clearly, um, that hasn't happened. It's been complicated by NDIS pricing policies. But if you think about the shift in national resources that's happening here, which is about half a percent of GDP, you know, this would normally be accompanied with a whole series of quite major structural adjustment mechanisms, and we've had just had very little of that. Mm. So hopefully, again, you know, out of this review that David Tune's doing, we'll look not just at what the participant service guarantee is, but what are the things you need to do to enable whatever guarantee is put in place can actually be delivered uh, on the ground. And, and structural adjustment, assistance to providers to make that shift uh, and other measures I think are an important part of it. I was talking to a provider, um, small provider, innovative provider in Victoria um, on, on Friday night and she said, look, you know, we've, we have had proper policies in place for quality and safeguards, but we've got now got 16 new policies we have to follow because it's now moved to this national system. So we've got to completely rewrite our policies to do all of that so that we fit with this new framework and no assistance for them to do it. Small organisation, great organisation, doing really innovative stuff but struggling because of it. And, uh, from an Aboriginal perspective, I, I would say the NDIA or, or the system doesn't understand the Aboriginal market. Um, one of the battles we've had from the outset is that we say there are at least 60,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people eligible for the NDIS. So that's not a figure that gets acknowledged publicly. It's more around 20,000 is the figure that gets maybe mentioned publicly. And frankly, the agency's wrong because our data is based on our partnership with the Australian Bureau of Statistics and we use National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander social survey data. So we know our data's right. The logic then is if I was launching a new brand of Coca-Cola tomorrow, wouldn't I need to know the size of the market to be able to make it work? So I worry, I'm, I'm with Bruce, there hasn't been investment in understanding what the market looks like and therefore how you deliver in that market. Um, at the moment, I, I, and it's, it's you know, a crude way to say, but it's sort of the lowest hanging fruit things going on at the moment. So those people that most in need, uh, that most need it and at most disadvantage, the market's very late to get to them, or the market will decide not to go to them. So if you're three or four, you know, I'm thinking of the half a dozen fellas that live under a tarpaulin 100 metres off the highway in Cairns, uh, when I was sitting with those fellas a while ago, I'm not a clinician, but three or four of them definitely had severe or profound disability. How do they get access to the NDIS? Effectively, they don't exist, actually. They're not known to anyone. Yet, uh, and I know from what Bruce, you know, the foundations of the scheme are to support every person with disability. The only other thing I would say too is we've still got a fight in how you define severe and profound. So we would say an Aboriginal person with a lower limb amputation living in Wonkajonka is severely and profoundly disabled. Whereas if they lived in perhaps Vaucluse, you know, no disrespect, but they may not be considered to be because they've got more stuff they can do. So I think we need to get back to that principle too of how you define severe and profound, how you define, how you understand social model. Um, I think there's been a real intensity to roll this scheme out, but I worry that the market mm. is not well understood and I worry also that the data's not there because our data's right, but um, it's not what's being used. So. We've got uh, about six minutes remaining, so I'm going to ask people to be as brief as possible with their questions. I'll try to be as brief as possible. Um, uh, my name is Sarah, and I represent the Australian book industry. 
And one of the things, one of the observations that I have about the NDIS is that there hasn't really been uh, strategic investment in industry capability. One of the things that we have been developing is for the past three and a half years has been the Australian Inclusive Publishing Initiative, the aim of which is to ensure that every book published in Australia is accessible to anyone with a print disability. I cannot get a single cent from the NDIS or from government to invest in building industry capability. Now, I'd also like to say that in relation to the publishing industry, we'd love to employ you all because, in fact, what we realise is that people with uh, a print disability are often fabulous readers. Um, and we would like to not just sell books to those people, but we'd like to employ them. And I think it is extremely short-sighted that this, along with many other industries that I think would be in a similar position, that we can't get the government investment or even the time to really see the potential of that. So I could probably answer that in that it's not the NDIS that needs to address that. The NDIS is... Oh. So there is... So part of the NDIS was funding for disabled people directly and then a thing called Tier 2, which is ILC, they call it, um, which is around other things. But the thing that Matt... No, correct. So the thing that um, is supposed to cover this is, act is a thing called the National Disability Strategy. There's just been a consultation around the National Disability Strategy very recently and that's being put together. I would be talking to government about um, print accessibility and information accessibility under that strategy that's being developed right now and yelling at them very loudly. I'm sorry, you can't be heard without the <laughs> Happy to yell. I think, I think the I problem, think should, the problem you're going to, to encounter, I mean, I mean, and Sam is making a really good point about the importance of the National Disability Strategy. Um, the problem with that is there's no money attaching to it. Mm. There are lots of highly aspirational and, what, and you know, goals that we would all say are really important. But unless we get... Uh, an overarching agreement. The, the government is contemplating what's called a national disability agreement, which would sit above the strategy and above the NDIS. And we really need that to be implemented with some real goals and some funding to enable um, the sorts of things that you're talking about um, to be um, supported. So, you know, we do get... I mean, because this goes to the heart of inclusion mm. uh, and accessibility. You know, it's print, it's, this, it's the environment, it's the whole bit. We have time for one more. Hi, my name's Tracy. Um, I just wanted to make more a comment um, that uh, what am I <laughs> that um, people with disabilities definitely uh, have a lot of problems getting a job and I don't see why there isn't a, a greater field of employment in the NDIS um, uh, with um, feminism you know that it's taken quite some time you can watch how it has progressed I mean in for you, the First Nations people, that went um, uh, back in the 60s, it wasn't even, um, I don't know. So um, what I think you, um, you uh, basically is you need positive discrimination um, for disabled people um, and you also need mentors. You need someone to look up to. Um, there is a, a few, like uh, Robert McCallum, um, people like that. Um, but really, uh, yeah. You <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Uh, does anybody want to respond no, to I that? agree. I'd say I agree completely with what you say. I think the NDIA is slowly improving and, and others would have better data than I do, but there needs to be people with disability in senior positions, in fact, leading the National Disability Insurance Agency. But also I think the board needs to move away from being corporate um, 
Uh, I, I don't understand that. Um, it'd be like me being on the board of Macquarie Bank. Um, mind you, I wouldn't mind giving it a go. Be, um, be well paid, well, there's don't There's plenty of cash there. Yeah, right? yeah. So <laughs> I wouldn't mind some of that. But uh, Well, not me, but our organisation would. But, yeah, so it's not logical to me either that, um, you know, but I agree with you completely. I'm sure others do too. And, and there's a point to be made in what you were saying about quotas and targets is a discussion that we still have around employment of disabled people. Um, there's still controversy about whether that's a good idea or not. Um, but we have, you know, what, 2% of disabled people in the public sector. I think, you know, if things aren't working, if the measures that they've put in place to date aren't working, then we need to start looking at doing things differently. Okay, we are out of time. I think that's a very good sentence to end on. Um, so can I thank everybody for their questions and their attention, and can I ask you to thank um, our panel in the usual manner? Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.